Welcome to The Breakdown with Brad Corp and Becky, a weekly podcast that breaks down politics, policy, and current affairs. I'm Becky Scher. And I'm Michael Broadcorp. And we are here with an extra special podcast today. For the first time ever, we have three guests with us for a panel discussion on our recent episode featuring Scott Jensen. If you have not listened to last week's episode yet, we recommend you going to listen to that prior to this week's conversation. Today, we are happy to wel- welcome former Representative Kelly Fenton, Leslie Rosedahl, and Jill Voyevich Labs. These women have incredible experience in Republican politics. They have served in the state legislature as members and staff. They have been officers, activists, and delegates for the MNGOP at various levels. They have run endorsement campaigns, launched statewide efforts, served as campaign staff consultants, and everything in between. Because of the incredible response we got from our recent episode with 2022 gubernatorial candidate Scott Jensen, we wanted to continue the conversation with this panel of activist operatives this week. We are going to start by breaking down individual reactions to Scott Jensen's interview um, in general. We will then specifically break down the conversation about the broken endorsement process and path forward. We will then break down all things surrounding the abortion topic and general messaging of the Republican Party. And as a special treat, we are going to throw in some uh, some discussion breaking down the recent launch of the Suburban Solutions Caucus in the Minnesota legislature. Lastly, we will break down the general question of where do we go from here? And due to some outrage by our panelists, we threw in a crowdsourced topic for a last-minute food fight. Favorite Halloween candy. Buckle in as you're in for a real treat with today's panel of some of my favorite women in politics. Thanks for joining and enjoy the show. Well, welcome, everyone. We're really grateful um, you were all able to join us today. Uh, we had a really great conversation interview um, with uh, gubernatorial candidate Scott Jensen last week. Um, have gotten a lot of comments, feedback um, all over the board and thought that it would be great to have three operatives, insiders, representatives, electeds, all everything above and of the above um, here to kind of help us dissect what he said, the conversations, and just where we go from here. So um, we want to start with uh, just general introduction. So Representative Kelly Fenton, if you'd like to kick us off. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm Kelly Fenton, and I am former state representative for Woodbury. And prior to that, I was former deputy chair of the Republican Party of Minnesota. Now that I'm out of the legislature, I really enjoy some of the nonprofit work that I'm doing. I'm on the board for the Woodbury Canine Foundations. We basically fund any needs uh, for our canine dogs. And I currently serve on the board of uh, Canvas Health, which is mental health and substance use care providers. So I'm enjoying the work that I do for the nonprofit boards um, since I'm not in the legislature. So thanks for having me. Fantastic. Leslie. Hey, thanks, Becky and Michael, for having me. I'm Leslie Rosedahl. I'm from St. Paul. I've been a, I'm really glad to talk to you today because this is really um, up my alley. I've been a state delegate for the past 22 years um, since I was in since I was in college, and that's where I first met Michael. I think when I was in college way back when, and um, have met Becky shortly after, and and all the folks on this call. So it's really fun to be together um, as polit- Republican politics is particularly a small world. Uh, part of my history, you know, not only being an elected state delegate, I've been a BPOU chair in St. Paul. Um, for a large part of my 20s. And then with Becky, I think um, I've worked for the state Republican Party um, as a as a, as a political director, staffer's role, uh, been a uh, candidate staff or senior volunteer for the Palenti 20, 
2002 campaign, the first one, the first uh, versus Brian Sullivan campaign, the Emmer for governor, Johnson for governor, McFadden for Senate, and most recently, Michelle Benson for governor was her communications director. So um, I'm also the chair of Women Lead. It's a political action committee. It's something I'm really proud of and, and work with a lot of groups to raise some money and and help support financial, uh, fiscally responsible electable women in Minnesota with some financial donations and networking. Um, and, and lastly, I, I run my own public affairs consulting business uh, out of St. Paul, and I'm very fortunate to to do that and help a variety of issues across the state run, raise their profile and and get the results. So thanks for having me again. Thank you. And Jill? Well, I'm excited to be here. My name is Jill voivich Lobs, and I started with the Republican Party um, in college, my college Republican days. I restarted the College Republican Club at St. Catharines, or as I like to call it, the College of St. Liberal, became the state executive director of um, the Minnesota College Republicans, transitioned into uh, Bush Quill 92, became a state central delegate as well, BPOU chair. Um, I was on the board of directors for the Human Life Alliance. I'm a former civil service commissioner for the city of South St. Paul, as well as the chair of the Charter Commission in South St. Paul. And now I'm a, pretty much a full-time political operative for the Republican Party, working on an assortment of campaigns, whether federal or local, and uh, uh, the occasional issue initiative as well. Fantastic. Well, you you all just proved our points of why we invited you to to be here and have be part of this conversation. So we're going to kick things off um, talking about the endorsement and specifically, um, as you probably remember, and just to remind our listeners, um, when we had uh, Scott Jensen on, Scott did say it was a broken endorsement process. He did receive the endorsement. Um, he says that going forward, he thinks that candidates should go for the endorsement, but pledged to go to a primary and went as far as saying donors should pledge not to give um, money to candidates unless they are going to be going to a primary. Um, so I, as as women and, and people who have been involved at in campaigns and in the endorsement process at variety of different positions. Um, does anybody have thoughts on on both what he said and on the endorsement process itself? L Leslie, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I'll kick it off. You know, um, I was glad I listened to it. So thank you for having him on the show. Um, you know, in full disclosure, I was not a, a Jensen delegate. Um, I came in in the convention, you know, uh, supporting Michelle Benson and she she unfortunately dropped out of the race uh, as one of the many candidates right before the convention, a few weeks before, if I remember. So I, I was coming in, um, not a Jensen supporter, but, um, you know, I, I thought his, his assessment on some things was spot on, but some things kind of ignored some of the hard truths about his campaign. So I thought, I thought, um, I thought, you know, it's kind of revisionist history about what, what you mm -hmm. want to say. He started running for the endorsement um light years ahead of every other candidate in the race he had a full almost year ahead to raise money to court delegates um to do all the things um to be the candidate running against walls where nobody else was in the race um that gave him a huge advantage to a lot of new people coming into the endorsement um the endorsement was the process i i want to believe that uh that i you know i I'm optimistic that it's it's an opportunity for people without a lot of financial resources to have a path to to impress people to win an endorsement, but it doesn't work like that. It doesn't properly vet people. The 25, 2,500 people don't properly vet people 
um, in a way that they should. It's become like you guys talked about a litmus test. And there's too many people um, that are elected delegate, in my opinion, that are focused on a litmus tests on issues and not focused on a candidate that's electable and winning, Wait, winning races. We have nothing unless we win races. And I think, um, you know, as a Republican myself, you know, we have to uh, nothing, you know, all of these issues people care about with the, in the even the delegates don't matter unless they're into, you know, we get a chance to govern and show people how to do that. So I I don't think that the the state endorsement process of supposedly wooing delegates works. Um, it, people are not people are winning the endorsement that don't have more than a few thousand dollars in the bank. People are winning endorsements that are clearly uh, not um, that that rank, you know that the mass majority of Republicans even in the state won't stand behind, and that's not something I I want anymore. It's it's. I think I'm I'm of the opinion that it needs to be all all things on the table. We need to talk about how we can get back to winning elections, and the Republican Party can't needs to needs to change, or else we're not going to do that. Now, Representative, you were formerly deputy chair of the party. We did have David Hanna on um, a couple months back, and he said something very similar to Leslie that um, the party is meant to elect delegate or uh, to win elections is is to find candidates, and then win the elections with those candidates. Can you speak a little bit to your thoughts of the endorsement process and, and your time in the party? Um, absolutely. Well, first of all, I have to say I am in favor of June primary, and I carried the bill while I was at the legislature, and we came closer than ever um, to passing that. But um, the endorsement process is broken, and I, I I think it's time that we look at moving toward uh, being a full-on primary state. And I agree with some of the things Leslie said, it's, it, and you, you and Michael had mentioned it in the last podcast that it's very polarizing. It's black or white. There's no in-between. I think a candidate, if they're having to uh, run via primary, they are talking to a much broader swath of people. And I think uh, some of the things that uh, Scott Jensen mentioned is the reason that we do need to move to full on primary. We need to be talking to swing voters and the people who we aren't sure if they're going to vote for us. Unfortunately, we get stuck for far too long in the process of talking to those who we know will vote for us. When I was a candidate um, running for office, I told my BPOU, I love you guys dearly, but just know I won't be able to make it to a lot of the meetings because I'm going to be at doors talking to other people whose votes I need to get. I no, don't feel like I'm ignoring you, but I'm doing my job. And so um, I but we get far uh, too involved in talk, talking too much to the voters who are already going to vote for us. And that's a huge problem. Jill, your you know, thoughts. You know, I, <laughs> there was a lot to unpack in that interview. A lot. Um, and I I don't think you can dismiss and discount delegates because most of them are idealists. They have passions. That's what got them engaged in the process in the first place. I think some of what Dr. Jensen was suggesting was a little extreme. Do I think we should go to a primary? Yeah, I do in the long run. But until that time, we have the framework of the endorsement. And we have to be able to work that way. And quite frankly, 
Um, Dr. Jensen not only had a year plus to fundraise, he stacked the caucuses. Caucus night, it was pretty obvious that it was extremely heavy Jensen in most precincts. I was running around with a candidate statewide. We were flying all over the place trying to hit as many precincts as we could, which, by the way, is a nuts situation anyhow. But um, we could tell. We could tell it was primarily Jensen, and they didn't care about anything else. So for him to say that the the caucus and the endorsement process is broken when he clearly benefited from it, I think is a, it, it's just a scooch hypocritical. Um, and that, you know, he needs to look a little bit farther down the line at his failure because his failure didn't come in fundraising. His failure didn't come in the caucus preparation or for that. So, yeah, I would support a primary, but he he needs to be more objective, I think. Joe, that's exactly my point, too. He had a year. He won the primary, but he failed to win the general. And that's that's something that I think he he himself talked about furries and litter boxes. He himself was and Matt Burke had the amount of gaffes and the amount of unprofessional, untrusted, untested campaign they ran was it was not reflective upon a winning campaign. And that's nothing to do with the caucus system or the in the in the delegate system. You know, he he played that game extraordinarily well, you know, and he won. So it was a it's as usual. It was an execution problem. And we have seen this and all three of us in particular and Becky, you as well, I'm sure. And Michael, we get a good candidate. We get a viable candidate. And somewhere along the line, the self-destruct sequence starts. And it it just once it goes, it's like an M80, it's just the fuse is short and it just explodes and there's no way to recover from it. And you just sit here and you grab your head and you think, what are you doing? Who is advising you? Why is this happening? You were on the right track. What just what just went wrong here? And and I think, you know, there's a there's a case to be made for that. So, you know, if we can go to a primary, but if you're not going to execute your campaign properly, and effectively, it isn't going to mean diddly. So I was a delegate at this convention, and I have to say, uh, he was continually up until a certain point losing delegates. And I believe strongly that he would not have been the nominee at the end of that convention had Mike Murphy not been allowed on that stage to basically um, call out Kendall Qualls. Yeah, 100%. He, Kelly. he called him yep, a sellout. No and I think he impacted Kendall personally and professionally. Um, and for no reason, Kendall didn't deserve that. And I believe if Mike Murphy had not gotten up on that stage to say anything at all, that Kendall Qualls likely would have been our nominee. And I think we would have seen um, a different outcome in certain elections, maybe not the gubernatorial race itself, but I definitely think down ballot, down ticket, we would have possibly seen a different outcome, but we'll never know. And I would really, you know, while, while Scott Jensen talked about a lot on this last podcast, I would love for him to discuss that mm-hmm. because I don't think he ever brought it up. And that had a personal and a professional impact on Kendall Qualls. So I hope that he comes back onto your show and he talks about that. 
And just, uh, I just want to uh, frame that up for some listeners who maybe were unaware of what happened at the state convention. Um, Kendall Qualls was another candidate, was doing really well, um, was about, I think at that point was actually the front runner. The the first position on these ballots, I think, you know, they go into multiple ballots and and front runner changed multiple, multiple times. Um, there was a candidate, Mike Murphy, who uh, Michael is, you know, has has shared he's not the biggest fan of in the past, um, who was a candidate. He dropped out um, and uh, then went up on stage later on in a subsequent ballots and said that Kendall's campaign had offered him the lieutenant governor position and then rescinded. Um, it has since come out that that was not actually true. And so um, that did impact a lot of delegates on the floor who were taken aback, were offended, were thought that Kendall was kind of playing the game. Um, and and I think that, I, I mean, speak up if you disagree, but I I would, speaking for all of us, I think that we're all under the assumption that that drastically impacted, um, if not ruined, Kendall's chances of, of taking over because he was very, just a, a few percentage points back. So um, definitely a good question. And I think we do hope to have uh, the doctor on again at some point. And so maybe that can be on the list. But a couple of things that you guys have talked about um, that I want to go into is is messaging at the endorsement or for the endorsement in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think we all are familiar that the endorsement obviously has a different message than when you're talking to primary voters and then when you're talking to general voters. I've said this multiple times. We talked about it with Senator Housley when she was on and a couple other guests of it's not changing your messaging or it's not changing your vision, your mission, what you stand for. It's changing how you talk about it, right? So we're not supposed to be changing our core beliefs, but just how we are messaging them to the audience that we're talking to. And when you're going for the endorsement, that is a further right than primary voters. Um, Does anybody want to speak to maybe a little bit about that? And in particular, how uh, Scott Jensen did say that he was all in about banning abortions and then basically said that he felt maybe a, a little bit roped into that or or felt like he had to say that um, and be all in uh, on for life for to get the endorsement. Sure, I'll, I'll go first. Um, <laughs> you know, here's here's the thing that that dual personality of a campaign for the Republican Party where you have to message one way for the delegates and for the endorsement and yet not damage yourself for the general election is so strenuous and stressful and you have to tiptoe on glass the entire way and it's sort of like and i use a lot of movie references but it's sort of like in the golden child when eddie murphy is on those pipes trying to get to the to the little dagger and if you step on the wrong dagger, you're going to go sink. That's what the messaging is like between party activists and general public. And, you know, Scott Jensen got called out early about the legitimacy of his um, pro-life stance. And um, his campaign balked. They delayed in responding. And when they did finally respond, it was weak at best. And um, any functional and effective campaign would have known that he previously worked for Planned Parenthood and would have had a statement ready for the delegates and the general public the minute it came up. Okay. And it it could have been something, they could have shut it down very quickly. He could have been something as simple as, you know what, I did work there during my residency. And what I saw there, not only informed, but it formed my pro-life position. 
and I, I would never, ever go back. And that would have shut it down completely. I think it would have shut it down. They would have said, yep, okay, you know what? He saw it for with his own eyes. That's how miserable it is, whatever. The delegates would have been right there with him. But instead, there was first a campaign manager put out a tweet. Then another staffer put out a tweet. Then he put out two tweets to try and shut it down. Then, every you know, the pile-on started. And the whole swarm. You know, we all knew that the court, the Supreme Court was probably going to release um, the Dobbs decision. And we should have been prepared for that, too. The party as a whole should have been prepared to start educating the voting public immediately that we were already solid here in Minnesota on a woman's right to choose. Okay, and instead it, it just snowballed and got away from us there. We had no, any, no candidate had anywhere left to go after that. Leslie, as someone who was um, communications director for uh, Michelle Benson's gubernatorial campaign, I have to imagine um, abortion was a, a something you probably talked about how to play, how to d message that to delegates. And um, can you explain a little bit about your take and when talking to to delegates, and then maybe transitioning beyond? Sure, you know, delegate issue the issues that are on the top of mind of delegates are just different than what some of the issues are in the top of mind of your regular neighbor or your family. I mean, they're just they're not, a, they're, they're more, you know, I would say more right wing or more socially conservative and more there's, there's, it's interesting. You know, I think an, um, your average person would want somebody governor with some experience knowing the issues that's, that's has a proven record that has, um, you know, some life experience um, and has as a proven record on, you know, uh, abortion or all these things, but, uh, Republican delegates, they don't want somebody with experience and that's just mm -hmm. blows what, you know, they want somebody that's never been in politics. They, but yet if you flip flop on the issues, you know, they're, they're okay with that. And it, it's, it, it bothers me that candidates do have to feel like they have to flip flop. And I, and that's, and what's what Jensen did in his, it, you know, people called him on it a lot as uh, what his record was as a state senator and then what his um, positions were as state governor or as, as a gubernatorial candidate. I mean, it's I, I don't want a statewide candidate that's serious and running a, a serious campaign should not have be flip flopping on the issues. They should know exactly where they stand and be proud of it. And that is what they believe. And they owe it to the voters to say what they believe right or wrong. You don't pandering to, to a certain group. Um, while I understand it, it's just not, it's not right to me. It's, um, and they shouldn't have to do that. So people want, deserve to know where you are and not, you know, switch the loop after the endorsement's over. So. I gotta say, um, in listening to the podcast with Jensen, basically <laughs> what he was saying was I was not truthful at all during my campaign. As a candidate, that's what I heard. And I really wish that he would have been true to himself as a candidate and running his as the leader of his own campaign. Um, you know, you can there is a way to talk about being pro-life without turning off the um swing voters or even the pro-choice voters. I know that. I had conversations at the door. And I never lied to anybody. When someone asked me about my stance, I let them know that I personally am pro-life, but I was going to work 
I was going to the Capitol to work on fiscal issues. I had a record. I, I never carried any legislation related to life while I was at the legislature. Um, I, you know, the, one of the things that, you know, he talked about that defining moment in his campaign. I mean, I was it not after endorsement that he said, I will ban abortion in Minnesota. That was after the endorsement. That was not only a defining moment for his campaign. I got news for you. That was a defining moment for all of us as candidates. The Democrats only campaigned on one issue, um, one issue against me, one issue against him, and it was abortion, that Republicans are extremists and going to ban abortion. The reality in Minnesota, um, as far as I've been engaged in politics, we had a more pragmatic stance on abortion. Uh, on abortion. Yes, we're pro-life. But we believe in abortion exception, such as to save the life of the mother, incest, rape. We're not, we were not extreme. But I can tell you uh, now, because the legislature got full control, um, that there are some extreme measures that they did do and they did away with on some of our common sense bipartisan um, limitations that we had in place. But that defining moment, I will ban abortion in Minnesota, became the campaign ad against all of us. So I I wish that as a candidate himself, that he would have been true to who he really was. Now, Michael, you've um, been a little quiet so far, so I want to get you uh, in on this topic as well. Um, maybe even talking about just the situation when we had Jensen in the room and, and him sharing his stance um, following that op-ed and and kind of just how how you took it and, and what your general thoughts on the messaging when it comes to endorsement versus beyond. I, th- I th- thank you, Becky. And and one of the things that I was really taken aback at is that, and I'd love to get the reaction from from others uh, on this on this episode that we're recording, is it's very clear to me that Jensen ha- was I think conflicted on a number of issues, and I think that the mistake that I think he made was running for office before he had vetted out where he believed, and I don't think that a campaign. On, is a place in which on certain core issues that you can deviate as much as he did. If you're coming up with, for example, a small business plan, or you're coming up with addressing public safety, things that can potentially move based on current developments and, and news that's going on. I think the problem that Jensen had is that he, on core issues that I think are to Republicans and to a lot of Minnesotan voters, he just was going back and forth on it. And I think he was using the campaign as an opportunity to flesh out who he was. And I think the problem with that is that leads to inconsistencies and misstatements if you don't know who you are. And I think that's what tripped him up. I, I do yep. think, to Jill's point and to others, I think he's personally conflicted on the issue of abortion. I think the decision that you have to make then is if you're personally conflicted on these issues, I think the decision you have to make is might not be the best time for me to run because 
if you're the electorate, that's not a good time in which for you to seek stuff out. Because I do think that people want definition from their candidates on something. I think it's too much to evolve that quickly. And so I think that Jensen, respectfully, was, I think, a little naive. And I think he touched on it a bit about how he had not fleshed out and truly done some soul searching on his positions on things. And I think that led him to a situation when the the political climate flipped and evolved, that he was kind of all over the place. And it's just not the type of campaign a Republican can run. I will say, and I'll leave it to the rest of you to talk about, I think one of the things I think we can all agree on, and I'd be curious if you do agree on, is that if you're a Republican running in this state, I think you really have to thread the needle on how you run your campaign. I think you have to have a tight campaign operation, be a sharp candidate, well-defined. And Republicans just, I just don't think, have as much latitude to evolve and make mistakes. And I think that we learned that this election cycle. Can I just add one thing? I mean, I feel like Republicans in Minnesota have become too comfortable with losing. And and we need to ask ourselves, at what point are we tired of losing? And maybe when everybody asks themselves that question, we could start seriously learning how to win again. But right now, I think Republicans and strategists and everybody involved in the process is all too comfortable with losing, and we need to be uncomfortable with it. You know, uh, and this is Leslie, I think there's Kelly's absolutely. I mean, I, I agree with Kelly. I think people are very comfortable in losing. And I think a lot of Republicans, even candidates, believe we need to convince people that they're wrong, you know, and we're right. And I, I just don't would like, you know, people that I don't agree with, I'm just going to convince them that they're wrong. And telling people they're wrong is not a winning message. Um, meeting people where they're at with some common ground and common sense, that's a winning message. And I think that um, <laughs> I, I would think Republicans are in this convincing and and it's going down the wrong path and a waste of time. And we've got to admit we're not winning elections. We need to meet people where they're at. And frankly, there's a lot more moderate um, and Democrats are winning and we need to there's not enough Republicans in this state right now to win elections and on these hardcore issues. We need to we need to be a bigger tent. Um, we can't do have a litmus test on every issue. We agree with candidates, you know, whatever it is, 70, 80, 90, you know, let's let's roll. And so then we can have the chance to an opportunity to govern in a way that doesn't raise taxes, you know, a billion dollars, actually like 10 billion in the last session um, or do those type of things. And now look what we have when we're convincing people that they're wrong all the time. And um, anyways, my two cents. I, I think, think that's that. A, oh, go ahead, John. Go ahead. Go, you go ahead, Becky. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that's a really great way of putting it is not convincing folks that they are wrong. And that's what we've been doing rather than having sensible, well thought out, articulate, um, principled stances, which is what I think we were a, a little surprised with how Jensen approached this during his interview. And I want to chat a little bit about his approach when he's, you know, if, if you remember, he laid out basically that he is personally pro-life, but he believes in the autonomy. He believes we should make, um, you know, contraceptives. Um, you know, safe and accessible and, you know, to, to the masses, we should have all of these different things so that folks who 
want to be able to prevent a pregnancy can do so on the front end rather than having it on the back end. All sorts of these things that and now I know when you're explaining you're losing is something we always say, but the way he laid it out was a very articulate way of doing. But do you think, let's say, let's say in dream world here, we're moving on from the endorsement. We're talking to going, talking to Republicans through the primary. Do you think that that sort of explanation. Do you think there's room in the Republican Party here in Minnesota to be somewhat squishy on abortion, to be somewhat, you know, safe, legal, rare when it comes to abortion, somewhat, uh, you know, acknowledge the personal autonomy of folks to have that choice? Do, Do we have room for that in our party? If you're talking about activists, I would say no. If you're talking about the Republicans that are statewide that don't caucus, that don't become BPOU uh, delegates that aren't at the state convention endorsing candidates, I would say yes. Um, I think there's a lot of um, uh, hidden Republicans here in Minnesota, or I wouldn't even call them Republicans. I might even just go, there's hidden hidden conservatives, okay? Um, you know, when I first got involved with the party, we were the independent Republicans. And that independent side of the Republican Party was the more moderate wing. It was the, I mean, obviously he's gone fully left now, but Arnie Carlson, the Burt Mackesys, the, you know, there was there was that practice of politics as the art of compromise. And they would legislate and they would meet in the middle with some of the Democrats. But to be fair, I think the Democrats are experiencing somewhat of a schism as well, because I think there are lost Democrats who have no idea where to land right now. They they don't even fit in with some of the extremism in their own party, and they're looking for something in the middle. And I, I, there's just there's a lot of lost voters out there. And and to Michael's point about running a tight campaign, I also think the voters of Minnesota want someone who's authentic. They want somebody authentic to their belief system. They want something authentic to who they are as a person. And I think in in Dr. Jensen's case, like you said, he was he's still struggling, I think, with with where he is on on stuff. He needs a, as they call it, a shaka shakabuku, which is a swift kick to the to the head to alter your reality forever. And I and I, not that he needs somebody to kick him. What I'm saying is he needs that that metaphysical kick to his system to fi- to refocus him and figure out where he's at. You know, this is Leslie on the strain of what Jill said about how um, people were looking for an authentic candidate. I think that goes along the lines of that. Um, I think people are looking for a candidate that's authentic and they can trust and that's competent. And I don't think somebody, a candidate that waffles on issues that set, is known for gaffes is a competent, trusted can- professional candidate. And it's, it's the delegate going now going back to state delegates. There was this huge push, and it's happened before, not every year, but because uh, you know a lot of the delegates are new every year. You see different, you see the some maybe half of the same faces, um, and then but it evolves, and there's new people that come in, which is good. I think it's a good thing to have new new people um, elected. Uh, but they really wanted an outsider, anybody with experience in politics who had a record who knew what they were doing, who knew how government worked, who knew, um, you know, again, what they were doing, uh, was no, it was a, a red scar, you know, a whatever that word, a red A on their, you know, on themselves. I mean, you, you couldn't, it was a, it was a detriment in which blew my mind because 
somebody to be a governor of the state is a huge position. And with with it, to have to vote for somebody and Mike Murphy, for example, was the lead candidate at one point who who has was a mayor, a mayor of a very small town, was not reelected. That, that, that doesn't count as, you know, it, that that's not a gubernatorial material. And to put for Republicans to think that that was our candidate blows my mind. That's not acceptable. And that's not a winning choice. Now, maybe not even a, a red A, but a red E for establishment, um, I think, is what they were wearing. Michael. Ugh. Oh, you are. I'd like to ask Leslie a, a question, and it's also to the group. To her point, Leslie, you bring up a very astute, smart point. You're, you are smart. You are a strategist. You understand these campaigns. Explain to me why. Explain to me the disconnect between the logic and wisdom that you have and why this body of delegates doesn't see what you see. Because your perspective is spot on. But where's the disconnect that the acumen that you just described, the logic and reason that you just described, is not transferred to the activists and they see the way? Because I think that's part of the problem is that we have smart people running campaigns in some instances, but particularly, Leslie, what you specifically said if you were to stand up at a convention and say that, I don't know what the reaction would be, but you're spot on right. And what do we do to educate the activists more to understand how how smart it is, your perspective is that you just said? Well, thank you, Michael. Those are really nice words. Um, I think, you know, it, I think on paper, somebody like Paul Gazelka or Michelle Benson make, you know, are terrific candidates uh, and that have some experience, but they were, you know, at the bottom of the heap for delegates this year, specifically because there's establishment, like you said, and that's a the great word. And and I, you know, you're labeled establishment as soon as you win an election or as soon as you work on a campaign. And I would I would argue that, you know, because you've been around, that's an advantage. Like you knows what you know it works, you know it doesn't work. We all care about the same issues. We don't need to divide or label ourselves as something different, you know, whether we've been a delegate or a elected official in the past. I mean, that's, I think experience is a positive thing and experience that p- makes you a stronger candidate for a statewide office. You don't make as many gaffes, hopefully, you know, you don't make the mistakes. You have a, a record and you know how to speak about issues. That's a positive and that's positive toward winning. I, I can't explain why people don't want that type of experience in a, this is a serious campaign. I mean, this is serious business. And I don't think some delegates um, value that as much as I do, for example. I'm in the seriousness of that. Michael, I want to throw it back to you, though, on that, because you were involved in campaigns, um, I'll just say a while back, and, and you know, 10 years ago, were deputy chair of the party. What have you noticed on the evolution of going from some more of those principal established leaders who have a record to run on to now, is there anything you can point to with that, or, or what evolution have you seen? I think there was a big shift around 2010, 2012 with the activists. I think that there, I think Leslie makes a good point, and I think a number of you all have made great points about this. I think for some reason, Republicans, Republican activists don't value the bench, they don't value the farm team, they don't value experience. And the problem that it sets up is that if you are a because I think that Republicans, 
have bastardized a lot of, I think, of what Reagan's philosophy was and understand it in a unique way. Reagan was great in making government the enemy. And so if you're someone who has experience working in state government or working at the legislature, that's almost a negative against you because they perceive you as part of the establishment. And what that lends itself to is it creates a lane, as Leslie was talking about, for candidates to come in and say and show up at the convention who have no preparation and really set the convention up upside down. And that's a new development that's happened. Now, I first saw that in 2014 when there were some candidates running for the United States Senate who had no ground game, no operation whatsoever. And it was surprising to see the, them come into the convention with no ability to leave with any type of organization. But what the activists were entertained by was fiery speeches. And I think we saw that this past time and the emphasis and significance that Mike Murphy had at the convention, I think was problematic. I, I think, but I do think that kind of time frame is when it happened. And I think that delegates fundamentally are not asking the right questions of the, these candidates. And I don't think candidates are being led in the right way. And so it's a combination of problems, but I think Leslie's philosophy and what you've all have touched on, I, I think we need to promote that wisdom and logic and hope that other people hear it because that's the way it's going to change. Go ahead, Kelly. Um, as somebody who's kind of worked on all sides, I've been a campaign manager. I was at the party. I was a candidate and served in office. One thing that I've seen over uh, the last decade, I would say, is that we're, we're getting a lot of one-issue delegates or delegates coming into the process attracted by maybe one main issue and not looking at the whole big picture and the whole of the candidate, right? I mean, I kind of wonder what, who would have been our candidate had we not been through a COVID um, lockdown, uh, just COVID period in the state of Minnesota, uh, would someone else have, mer uh, have emerged as a candidate? Because, you know, uh, originally when uh, Scott Jensen came in as a senator and you he touched on it, you talked about it, he was known as a maverick in the legislature, which I would say that's not always a great thing, but I'll let that slide right now. But uh, one of the reasons he came in and I knew from working with him uh, while I was in the House and he was in the Senate that he was an absolute moderate. I mean, by any by any other take uh, COVID and everything else out of it, if you looked at his initial record being on the gun control bill, uh, abortion bill, I think he even uh, signed on to a version of a Min Minnesota care buy-in, uh, things that were absolutely not really Republican values. And so he came out of the gate kind of being his own person when he was in the Senate. When you look at all of those things, you would think this guy would actually maybe be a great candidate to get the middle majority in the middle of the state of Minnesota. Um, but shortly, he kind of lost a little bit of notoriety while he was there. And I think um, his stance uh, within COVID brought a lot of um, notoriety back, uh, whether you agree with uh, reasons or whatnot. But I think that, um, you know, and then he got pigeonholed into being this far right, right wing zealot. And but I think that it was um, a lot of times we're seeing one issue 
activists get very engaged. And I wonder how things would have been different um, and who would have emerged as the candidate had we not been through the COVID lockdown. Now, before we move on from this, I just I think we've all kind of largely been in agreement that the endorsement process is is a broken, troubled, not pure process for us to get a candidate to the primary that is going to get us over the finish line and be successful in the general. Do you think there's any legs to actually doing away with the endorsement process? What would that look like? How does that happen? And is it going to happen or or would you expect that it happens anytime soon? You know, I, I'm thinking about that in preparation for this interview, Becky, is, and and um, I've actually talked with uh, Chair Han about, you know, what he's, what uh, what's on his mind. He's a personal friend of mine. And, um, you know, I think that he values, as I do, winning elections. And I think that that's what the party has to get back to. To do that, I think there's a process that needs to change, whether it's June primary, like Kelly supports, which I support. Um, whether it's changing the endorsement process, I was thinking this crazy idea um, uh, of having keeping the endorsement but having one vote, you know. And if you don't get sixty percent, there's one candidate gets sixty percent. There's no endorsement. It's just something like, do you know what I mean? Like something like that. Um, I also think thinking strategically, there's been attempts to run in the primary and in, in, in the past and to not go through the endorsement. And that's happened uh, with Jeff Johnson, where we, you had Kurt Zellers, Scott Honor, and there was one more. Uh, there were four candidates. Do you guys remember this? Uh, when he ran. And because of the large number of candidates, the endorsed candidate, I think, had a, had a leg up, something to stand out on, you know, and um, gave him an edge. I think the large amount of candidates that we've seen, both when Trump you know, became president when he ran as the most with with a large crowd, the most bombastic candidate kind of gets some attention and gets a squeaky grease. Right. Um, I think we saw that this last in 2002 uh, with with the Jensen, you know, with so many people running for governor, it was hard to really stand out. So you had to say some kind of things that maybe you to get attention. Right. Um, and then just the, the sheer number of candidates, I think, um, hurts the endorsement process hurts it. It's harder to find out like which candidate is the best. You know what I mean? When you have so many going on and so nobody's kind of making a decision about who to give money to. Uh, I think a primary would whittle that down. I think maybe a single vote would whittle that down. You know what I, I, I mean? Some process, some rules could be changed. I, I think is a, um, I don't, I, I don't see the, the, delegate. I don't see the Republican Party getting rid of the endorsement process with a vote. I mean, why would you vote to eliminate all the power the delegates love and have and and desire, you know? But if Mm -hmm. there's some way to modify it and some way the legislature could create a a June primary to make, and maybe we'd start winning and maybe that would give me some hope. But with the way the system is right now, I'm pretty pessimistic about electorally Republicans having an electoral win. So there are I mean, there are some things that we could start to do to move toward that process. Back when I was deputy chair at the party, uh, we were I had met we had a group with uh, legislators, Ken Mar- both Democrat, Republican, Ken Martin, myself. Um, Steve Simon was a part of that back then. And we talked about uh, things like a June primary, that sort of thing. Um, 
I think that we have the presidential primary in place now. So there's some quick things you could do. Maybe we have a hybrid and statewide candidates. You can you can tweak the language of that st- uh, state statute now to add in gubernatorial statewide candidates. So maybe we have a hybrid and um, have have those that high level have to go be primary and then locally endorse for the state legislative races. Uh, Bringing in a June primary, I think, would also help, but it's going to take time to move where we fully transition from, say, caucus to the June primary. The bottom line is the Democrats have figured out how to win, how to get their unendorsed candidate a win in the primary. Republicans really haven't figured that out yet. And um, I think that's a Democrat advantage. So if I, you know, and again, Scott Jensen talked about that. He's like, where, where's Ken Martin? Where's David Hand? They were in favor of this. If I'm Ken Martin, I'm, I'm going to let things ride out because right now it's to the Democrat favor since, you know, you had Dayton was not allowed in his con- in the convention. He said, "Fine, I'll run primary." He won. Walls lost in his convention and went right outside and announced he's going to primary. He won, uh, but in the eyes of the primary voters for Republicans, it clearly we're on- we're only engaging the delegates in the system and the delegates currently still believe that endorsement is important. And I would say we need to start thinking differently there. We, we need to look at electability. You know, Leslie brought up a point uh, too about um, the boombastic one, the fiery speech, you know, gets the attention. And I, I think that that is true. And I think we've seen it at multiple levels of our endorsement process, whether it's BPLU conventions, congressional district conventions, or the state convention. However, I think what we're missing as a party is the importance of the psychology behind that, because our delegates and our alternates are hardcore activists. I believe somewhere along the line here, no longer feel that they have a champion who's going to stand for the principles of the Republican Party and who are going to do it correctly and are going to do it uh, effectively. They feel like there's been too much compromise, that we're weak. They, it, It's almost like an overreaction to what they perceive to be political vulnerability. And I think, again, that goes back to that authenticity of candidates. If candidates were really authentic and really... Um, projected what it is to be a Republican, I think maybe we could work that psychology a little bit more. And in doing so, then maybe we can slowly transition to to a primary. I I am all I'm all for competition, and I personally think that if if you can't get it together to win a primary, anyhow, you probably shouldn't be trying for a general election. Very well said, ladies. Um, now I'm going to have a follow up question to this. To be leading this conversation about getting the getting rid of the endorsement, is Scott Johnson a credible voice to be leading the charge on that? And if not, who? If not, do you have any thoughts of who should be driving that train? Joel, we'll start with you. Put you on the spot. 
I would say no, because I don't think he has settled yet where he actually is on the political spectrum, number one, and that's the primary reason. Number two, I although I think what he said in his interview and some of his re- suggestions were definitely um, cogent and were valuable um, and should definitely be considered, I don't think they were all spot on and I don't think they were 100% correct. As far as somebody who should lead it, I think it should be somebody who is experienced in multi-levels of politics and maybe is a little bit more if you want to call us old school or as they define us establishment. You know, I had a I had a rather heated discussion one day with a delegate who started going off about, you know, you sound like a rhino and why would you support rhinos and why would you support establishment? And I got pretty hot and I said, well, you know what? I said, the rhinos in the establishment used to win. I said, they won. So we're doing something wrong. I said, so maybe we need to take a look at that and figure that out. You know, I mean, the thing is, is I would never have defined half of those people as rhinos or establishment. So I, I don't know. It's, it's not him. It, it, and maybe we need to kind of try and um, whittle that down and figure out who it is. But I, I also don't think it should be exclusively a man or a woman. I think there should be a team. Love that. Leslie or Kelly, either of you have thoughts on Scott or somebody else? You know, I, I agree with Jill. I think I don't think Scott's uh, going to, you know, it's he came out of the convention. It was still deeply divided. I can't say that, you know, the delegates who were, you know, in, um, were all behind him when we left the convention that day. Um, uh, I, I don't know, you know, as far as a leader in the Republican Party, I can't tell you who that is right now. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we have leaders in the caucus House and Senate caucus, of course, they're leaders on policy. David Hans, the chair. I I can't say, you know, Tom Emmer certainly, of course, is a is a leader in the in Congress. Um, it's I I don't have the answer to that one. <laughs> I usually I usually have something, Becky, but that's a that's a tough question. And I I I I can't see Jensen as somebody who's who's has the and I mean this in a polite way, but the maturity and the the um, to, to lead a group like this, who's who does as he doesn't have um, the experience in the in the the to, to do that kind of thing. Thanks. I don't think that uh, Jensen's the person to lead this uh, from a perspective as having served. I can tell you that June primary has to pass through the legislature. So you need the legislative um, branches to get engaged with it. Um, to do to fully disband caucus, though, that cannot that is not through the legislature. You need um, agreement from both party leaders. So, you know, perhaps the leaders need to get together and start talking more about it. Uh, but I I definitely am agreement with Leslie and Jill that Scott Jensen is not the person to lead that. Michael, why don't I, why don't we, we put ourselves on the spot here, too? You're going to name thoughts. I think it's important that we have the conversation. And and I will just say, I think one of the reasons, Becky, that I think that we wanted to reach out to Jensen is because I do think that there is a role for, uh, you know, a former endorsed Republican candidate, um, if they're willing to come in and be a part of the process and have that conversation. I don't know. I think the jury is, and it's clear by, 
what I've heard so far in this in this episode and what I've heard from others. I think the jury is still out on which Scott Jensen people think is now around. And I think that um so I think that that's the 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 hurdle that I think he has to overcome. I think this is important conversation that needs to happen. And I think the more that that responsible people can be a part of the conversation, I think is good. I think it's a bit early to anoint someone as as the leader of it, but I think I think he started the conversation. I think we've started the conversation. I think we're continuing it tonight. I think that's important. I think the conversation needs to happen. And I think all of you have said some really amazing things that I think are going to be important to highlight after this episode about how, you know, Republicans um, are, you know, need to not be so comfortable with losing and a point about not being so argumentative and, and telling camp people that they're wrong about issues and campaigning that way and just being more open-minded and, 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 and willing to understand where the party is. Those are the type of conversations that we need to have right now. And I think, I think that that's where we need to go. I hope these conversations happen because I will say as someone who was a critic of Jensen pretty consistently during the election, I will say to you that I think, it is unusual to see a candidate come out and be as willing to be critical of themselves for what they've done. I think there's I think there's a lot of questions as to the authenticity of what he said. And I think that's up for individual people to say. But I think there's some momentum that's been started by us having that episode. And I wanted to continue and I wanted to foster and grow. I completely agree. I think that uh, you know, I, I I mentioned previously is, you know, I do like the aspect of the endorsement that it is a chess match in a game that you put in the effort, you woo the candidates, you do the work starting, you know, significantly early with a lot of financing and the right messaging and you can win it. Right. So I, I do I, I do see that. But I personally think it is going to take somebody potentially not going for the endorsement, maybe not getting the endorsement, going to the primary, being successful at the primary to really spur this change. I really thought that 2018 with Polenti was our shot at that. Um, it didn't happen and that was unfortunate, but I do think that that it, it's potentially going to be that. So I do think, you know, calling all strong, sensible, pragmatic, articulate candidates out there, please raise your hand. Please, you know, run for statewide, uh, run for office and and help us do this from that side. Um, from the other side, I think it was uh, one of you made a good comment. I think Jill had mentioned, um, you know, having a man and a woman or, or, you know, I think even a committee of sorts having folks, candidates who have gotten the endorsement, who have gone through that process, who do understand delegates, delegates themselves, BPOU leaders, folks who don't just, aren't just thumbing, you know, throwing their thumb or whatever the saying is at the system, who aren't just trying to overhaul it because they don't like it, but folks who have actually been a part of it, who have understand that um, a lot of these People do put in a lot of time, effort, and energy to to be part of the party process. So um, I don't think it's going to change overnight. I would argue that I would don't know if it happens in the next four years. Um, I would like to think that it does. And and until then, um, we are going to be continuing to have candidates pander to the right. We are going to continue to have the Democrats who do have a fully functioning party operations, millions more dollars than we do, taking advantage and painting us all into the box of those candidates, whether we like it or not. Like Kelly mentioned earlier, you were all Scott Jensen. You were all Donald Trump, whether you like it or not, when you're running under the Republican ticket. So 
that was a, a whole world word salad of um, it, it. I don't have a name. I don't have a suggestion. I do appreciate, though, like you mentioned, um, a candidate like Jensen who did go through the endorsement process, also understanding that it is, you know, was to the detriment um, as well. So I think that, I oh. think that our our del- I think that our delegates and alternates and party as a whole need to remember that pragmatism doesn't preclude conservatism. And there is this gross misunderstanding that you can't be both. And it's simply not the case. And we have to do much better at defining that and establishing that with the new cadre of delegates and alternates that are currently in existence. Um. Now I'm going to throw us a throw us off a little bit. I am going to pivot. One of the things that Michael and I have talked a lot about, um, I've I know I've seen all of you have these conversations on Twitter in person, um, all across the board, is to be successful, we really need to to focus on messaging. We need to make sure that we are targeting not just Republican delegates, but voters across the board, um, and specifically here in the suburbs. I'm a, I'm a suburban mom. I think we've got some suburban moms, uh, suburban women here uh, on this on this lovely panel here tonight. So um, I, I think and agree to disagree, or let me know if you disagree that you don't think suburban women and, and suburban voters are our top priority for the Republican Party of Minnesota and across the nation. Um, we just saw the um, creation of a Suburban Solutions Caucus uh, at the state legislature. Um, love the idea. Thinks it's really great. Um, I have been a little vocal in the last 24 hours, I think, as does Michael, about a little frustration that it is six men on the panel and, and no women. Um, curious one about your thoughts about, uh, focusing on the suburbs and, and the need to do that. But also, um, if you have any thoughts of putting everybody on the spot, if you have any thoughts about this caucus, its mission path forward and lack of women, unfortunately on, on the board or on the caucus. Well, uh, I'll just say that, um, you know, bad optics and mistakes happen, happen in a, in a vacuum of leadership and um the this i i feel like maybe from what i saw today i applaud the idea of wanting to come up with solutions have solutions um and not just being the party of no um but really think your rollout um the press conference um, and whatnot. I know uh, these are legislators from pretty moderate districts. Uh, two of them, I think, serve in a district in which there's a very progressive senator um, from the other side that they serve. I get that. But, you know, uh, patience is a lot. And um, we shouldn't rush to great ideas. We should take time to make sure that we uh, do it right and do it right from the beginning. Anyone else? Michael, even? I, um, I, I'm going to be candid and tell you that when I saw it, um, I literally thought it was an S. I, I, my first reaction was this an SNL skit. Um, because it, it was so just, and Becky, I think it, you know, I mean, I live in the suburbs. Um, I understand. I mean, 
what the reality, I mean, I, to understand a little bit of, of the suburbs and it just, to me, it seems just a, an absolute no brainer. Um, and maybe, you know, I think I was more aware of it, particularly Becky, because of our messaging conversations and the stuff that we had. Um, and we've also made, I think a very conscious effort, um, on the podcast to be as inviting as we can be to all perspectives. Um, we've tried to create a space where, you know, a little bit of a safe space where we can have Democrats, Republicans on and talk about things. And that takes a variety of, of, of views and to the, to the thought process that we could have Scott Jensen on, which was something that I never thought we could have, would have been able to done to do, but we've had, you know, uh, you know, suburban senators, uh, Democrat female senators, Republican female senators on uh, talking about issues, members of the House, members of the Senate. And so to me, it's a great idea to be focused on the suburbs. It's really something that you and I have spoken to on such a consistent basis. It simply boggles my mind that they would not have thought about inviting a, a female legislator to be a part of it. And I think it is a good idea incredibly poor execution and it's short-sighted lack of i think vision and perspective and what i just will say to you is 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 that i keep looking for when republicans are going to hit the bottom on stuff when this is going to be the type of situation that's going to make <laughs> us recalibrate and i thought that after the election particularly on some of the messaging um that we would have thought different about this and we've gone through an election cycle that I think was painful and difficult for a number of ways. I, I would have thought that we would have understood that, but the, the idea that this was launched and, you know, six weeks were spent building a website uh, uh, to message around six white guys um, is, is just mind boggling to me that we're doing that in 2023. Really? Yeah. So uh, as a political operative, <clears throat> And a campaign manager, volunteers, people are always asking, what can we do? What if we do this? Can we post more on social media? Blah, 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 blah. And you love the help. But what I have started giving them as a mantra is this. Start asking yourself if what I'm about to post, what I'm about to say, tweet, do, gives free ammunition, free bullets to the Democrats to hurt not only a specific Republican, but set it up for a big ad campaign that will hurt all the Republicans running, ask yourself that question before you continue with the action. And if you think it is at all, don't do it. Okay? Because a lot of it is knee-jerk reaction. A lot of it is instinctive. A lot of it is we mean well. And in this instance, I think the, the concept, I think the idea of it, I think... The outreach portion of it is is right. But again, the execution, the lack of attention to detail, the, I mean, I saw today, I think it was Max Halperin was talking about the fact that none of the statements they had from people were even from the districts in question. I mean, that's just, that's somebody's staffer screwed up. I mean, that that's just awful. And it doesn't help us. Now, they just gave them, a couple of bullets to use on us yet again. We've had we've had a couple, and it's only Tuesday this week. I mean, I'm just my head is just hurting. I mean, it just when is it going to stop? You know. So ask yourself. Take a step back. Take a breath, and say, "Am I giving free bullets to the enemy?" 
I think one thing that um, I'm going to go on a little rant here. One thing that has been a frustration of mine for a while is what you just talked about is that um, folks are so quick to to tweet or say something um, when they have their platform and and using a platform as a Republican leader or candidate or elected is is fantastic and what we should be doing. But we have such little time. And in this day and age of, of the 24 hour news cycle or the hour by hour news cycle, um, we have such little time to to get our good stances, our good policies, our good um, what we are for, what we are standing behind. We have such little time and effort, especially because we don't have the money to get that out there, that any distraction is a distraction for the entire party in the entire state. Um, and we've seen this, you know, comparing mask mandates to the Holocaust. We've seen this, you know, people standing in front of Confederate flags. We've seen this across the board from all of these things that just make the the Democrats will continue to be able to point Republicans as racist, as small minded, as small tent, as homophobic, as you know, list the X, Y, and Z things that almost it seems weekly some Republican in Minnesota, whether it's a delegate, an activist, a party, whatever you know, name the 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 title behind them. Um, allows them to continue to say, well, here's a Republican, here's a Republican in Minnesota doing this. And it, it is extremely frustrating. And I think uh, on, a, on a smaller scale, being thoughtful, especially when it, things are not time sensitive. We saw this with the failure of to be able to, response to respond to Dobbs in general. Republicans have been begging to overturn Roe versus Wade, you know, for 50 years. And then when it happens, we have nothing to say on the matter. We need to sit down, take a take a beat, Come up with our, con you know, what we're for. And that was one of the main frustrations, aside from not having any women on this caucus, is that when asked what bill you want to pass, they didn't have a bill, one bill. They couldn't even, there was not one bill that was able to be named. It is a frustration of how any candidate, if you are going to put your name behind something, if you're going to do some, stand up and say something, you should be able to say, day one, I am going to X, Y, Z. Three things. Even if and and even more, maybe we just need to start a, a media training. Um, hey, who wants to start a media training thing here that uh, teaches candidates or electeds how to pivot? Because a simple pivot is a perfect thing in these situations. If you don't have a frame bill, is we're going to go have conversations with the people. They are going to tell us what we're going to do, what bills we should pass, and I'll get back to you on that. Frustrating rant over, Michael. What you got? I don't want to act as if I haven't made mistakes in the past, okay? I don't want to give the impression that I've I've led a conflict-free life or that I've not been a part of some controversy. That being said, I just want to be very, just very blunt here and say to you that this was not an initiative that needed to be rushed out. There was a lot of weeks that was spent into planning in this stuff. And I have to say this as, as a white guy who is considers himself somewhat of a republic, but as we described earlier, and I've had described myself as a little bit as a, of a homeless Republican right now, I think that there are, and I think this initiative is a clear example. There are a number of men, I think, who are standing in the way of this Republican Party succeeding to the level which is it did. Six men got in front of the cameras and put together a legislative agenda or discussed a legislative caucus. And there it's by information that I've received, there was not consistent, credible, and substantive outreach to female members of the legislature prior to that press conference. And the reality is this, is that six white guys could not walk into a press conference in the Minnesota State Capitol and take on a bold initiative, 
such as the Suburban Caucus, and ignore female legislators. It just can't happen. And so I think that if there is a, if I can speak to the white men inside the Republican Party, my suggestion to you is to just open the window, have a little bit of a more global view on some things, and think before you act, and think about the entire brand, the entire spectrum of what the Republican Party is, because it's not just white guys. Fair point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this opportunity to also say I do think it's a great idea. I do think there are some of these mem- members on this com- caucus are good representatives and good voices in the Republican Party. Um, I hope we see more. I hope we see Republican women. Um, the few that we have left in the state legislature, I know a lot of them did get wiped out. Kelly, you made that that point as well, um, which is unfortunate. But um, I hope I see more. I want to be optimistic. It just is frustrating. I have to just say, I agree with you. I don't want there to be... Um... I want there to be more creative thinking outside the box. But just take for what would happen if I decided I wanted there to be a minority outreach caucus and Michael Broadcourt, white guy, goes in front of the podium and says, uh, we need to be talking. I mean, there's just an optics with that that we need to be self-aware of. And I also will say to you is if it's not as if there's not talent around. It's just a matter of reaching out to it and, and involving it in the conversation to be self-aware of it. There are Republican female elected officials, the state, at the local level, the legislature, a whole variety of things that they could have tapped into on this. And for some reason, I think I do take and part of the reason I wanted to speak up about it was because I do think that I do think it was white guys like me who made the mistakes and led to it. And I think that when we're that it's important that that. We take ownership and call a spade a spade and and call it out like it is and recognize that. I think one of the other points I'll make is that we're all this call. Look at the talent on this call. And and I've probably spoken less on any podcast that we've done because I've just been so in awe of the talent and the people and the perspectives I wanted to learn from you all. But there's opportunities to, to do things different. And I think we're all looking for in various ways in our involvement in the party. We want it just to be run smarter. And I think as a white guy, I think my message to other white guys is that it doesn't need to be a white guy standing in front of the microphone. It can be a whole variety of people that can lead on behalf of this party. You know, somebody's been at the legislature um, who advised, I, I guess my question is, who was advising them? Because we all had staffers and uh, people who, you know, some did communications, leadership has staff, um, who was advising them and who thought that this would actually be a good idea. So um, I I pointed out immediately, you know, we lost. A, I, I wrote it down while you guys were talking. I mean, it, it to some extent, it really kind of uh, made me sad because I at one point we had like 11, maybe 10 to 11 suburban with really good, thoughtful suburban women in office. Um, and right now it looked like we didn't have any, but yes, there are three, but significantly less. And so I, to some extent, wonder if we don't have a problem there. 
Well, we are uh, a little over an hour here, so I want to be mindful of everyone's time and, and kind of just go to, um, you know, in closing, if there's any final words, anything, um, where we go from here, any uh, million dollar ideas of how to save the Republican Party and get Republicans back in office, anyone? I think we need to have drastically and rapidly improved self-political awareness and situational political awareness. I don't think our party right now is practicing either of those whatsoever. It is like being at a kid's birthday party when you play pin the tail on the donkey and they put the blindfold on you and they spin you two times one way and they spin you two times another way and then they say, okay, go put the tail on the donkey. I think right now we are getting spun around in multiple directions and we have no sense of where we actually are and where the target is. I think those things need to be defined. I need we need we I think we need stricter parameters. And I think that comes from leadership on down. Yeah, but this is Leslie. I I agree. I And like Michael said, I you wonder if we've hit bottom. I mean, and then we keep going down, you know, over. It keeps getting worse, right? Um, I, I do know. I just, I hope at some point we do hit bottom so we can start going up again, right? And And when is that? I know that our process makes it extremely challenging for competent, incredible candidates to run. It's a it's a very hard process going through the caucus convention system um, and even a primary system. And I think whatever process we change to has got to support uh, quality candidates uh, thinking that they have a shot to run and and whatever that means. I mean, that that quality candidates meaning can, can raise money, can articulate a strong message and are a strong and trusted, competent messenger that people can stand behind and say, I'm proud to vote for you. I'm proud to support you. I know you. I think you're going to, you know, you, you're going to do a good job for me. Um, I hope those type of candidates stand up because I don't think we have a strong bench right now of statewide candidates that, that are in that A team. I think we have a, a few B team, but why would they bother? You know, I think we have a few strong candidates um, that are in Congress right now that could win, win a, a strong uh, statewide campaign. But again, why would they want to put themselves through a process that spits them out and that with rewards a candidate like Mike Murphy with an endorsement, you know, and who is literally I had the he was winning at one point. I think it was ballot six or seven. I had to leave the convention floor and I had to. Yeah, it was this is it's unacceptable that that. The process we have gives us um, gives us these results that it would have us lose elections. And I'm not I don't want to stand for losing anymore. Um, and if that makes me establishment because I've been around and I care about the party, so be it. I just think we need to get to the point of where we are tired of losing fast and very uncomfortable with losing. And I think uh, with you know, there's opportunity right now too, with everything going on. We need we need an an active um we need unity among the party and the legislative bodies and uh with a unifying message. It doesn't need to be difficult uh with everything going on right now. Look at eighteen billion dollar surplus spent, uh nine billion in new taxes. The message can be really simple. You know, the Democrats are making it harder to put food on your table. They're making it more expensive to buy gas, to buy a new car, to get to renew your tabs. Uh, 
it you name it it ha- it's simple but we need a unifying message and we need to get to the point of where we are very uncomfortable losing our next big election michael i hope that what comes out of this is that people listen to more what you ladies have said tonight in this conversation i think it's so critical i'm so appreciative becky for you pulling this together and organizing this and and having but i think that this is what are we need to do more of i think there needs to be more conversations more voices need to be elevated and i've learned a lot tonight i think that you've all instilled a level of wisdom and uh maturity and logic to a very kind of difficult complicated process for the average person to understand but it's so important as republican activists to the degree which we all are that we change where we're at and i hope my hope is by promoting this episode and having more people hear your perspectives is that more people listen and that people understand from hearing the different voices and the significance of what you're saying that it changes the mindset and it changes the direction of the party. And so I just want to say thank you for being on here tonight. And it's so important that people hear what you have to say. And I'm just really proud of Becky for pulling this together and having this kind of conversation because I learned a lot and I was taking notes when each of you said stuff. And I just think it's remarkable what all of you have said. And I learned different perspectives tonight too having known you all, but just, it was really important. I just want to thank you. Every one of these episodes is becoming my favorite, but I think this one's going to be my favorite for a while. So just thank you for allowing me to be a member of the audience tonight and in here. Thank you. And I just want to say one thing also in closing is um, going back to, to what I think each of you has individually said, but also to our very first um, guest that we had on Annette Meeks is that we need to stand for something. We need to have a vision, a mission, um, a path forward as a Republican Party, as Republican candidates and Republican leaders. Um, and and I'm hopeful at some point that we will, we, you know, with our conversations about messaging and how to get there and and push between behind good leaders who are willing to put their name on the ballot, um, we can get there. I know we don't have a deep bench and and we have said that Um, I'm grateful that all three of you have been involved for as long as you have been involved. I plead and beg that you stay involved because um, even with, you know, having to wear whatever a scarlet E on your on your chest, if that means it or being branded rhinos at times or whatever it may be, but staying in because it is going to take people who have been around, who have seen it. uh, You know, the highs and lows and everything in between um, to really make change here. And so. With that, um, all of you are are some incredibly great follows on Twitter. Um, so if you could uh, go around the horn, I'll start with Kelly to Leslie to Jill. Um, share maybe your Twitter handle, where people can find you, if there's anything, um, website or, or anywhere else that uh, you want to direct anybody that listens. Uh, this is Kelly Fenton, and I'm on Twitter. And you could find me on Twitter and Instagram for the most part. So at Kelly Fenton MN. And thanks. This is Leslie Rosedahl. I'm at Leslie Rosedahl on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me mostly on Twitter at Gypsy, capital G-Y-P-S-Y, 2100. Fantastic. Well, thank you all for joining us. And uh, hopefully we'll have opportunities. If there's ever anything you're working on, um, let us know. We'd love to have you back again in the future. Hey, thanks, guys, for having us. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So we ended the recording and then there was some discussion about the food fight. And there's apparently 
Um, what, what occurred off air was all, uh, all three of our guests were really frustrated with Becky's food takes and they wanted an opportunity to come back on and oh, voice their oh, frustration <laughs> with Becky's lack of support of Turkey or just general, you know, fashion takes and stuff. So I want to give the floor back for all three of our guests to just fire away at Becky. Go ahead, everyone. <laughs> I agree with Becky. Now oh. the time. Uh, Halloween candy, Butterfingers, number one. There is no number two. Whoa. We're going to do Halloween candy. Leslie's chimed in. Butterfinger, number one, and no number two. Correct. That's strong. That's the right answer. Well, I'm totally into peanut butter. So I love the Reese's peanut butter cups. That's my number one. And I definitely have to go with Butterfinger, number two. Strong answer. Strong answer. See, Kelly, I agree with you. It's peanut butter cups followed by Butterfinger, but the worst, I think, Halloween candy, um, silk is peanuts. Cool. Uh, I just want to say, I think uh, I'm going to have to go back to the archives, but I'm pretty sure Butterfinger was on my list. You know, I'm pretty sure it was not on yours. Oof. I'm going to take this as a win. That's cool. Why uh, well, I mean, well, no, I have to be the mini hundred grand because yes, <laughs> that's my jam. Mm. And then number two, I have to say probably Butterfinger. Maybe go mini hundred grand and Kit Kat one and two. Mm. Yeah, I would like to ask one final question before we go. Pam, around the horn, hammer turkey, like at Thanksgiving or something? Yeah, scare. Oh, turkey. Just in general. Turkey. You're pro turkey? Let's say pro turkey. Turkey. No, turkey. Turkey. Oh, I'll go turkey. Becky, do you want to give your answer before we go? Ham, baby. Thank you all for, for, <laughs> for joining back on and, and recording with us. I'm glad we got that in. I don't want to leave anyone feeling uh, shortchanged or jiff about being on the podcast. And I'm glad the food fight is taken off a little bit. <laughs> Thank I just, you. I did pull out the archives, and Butterfinger was my number five um, and was not on Michael's list. So, But you were wrong about him. Okay. I'm still trying to understand your weird relationship with peanut butter, Michael. I just don't <laughs> like it. I just put peanut butter in the ingredients or a sandwich that's not a part of Canada. Oh, chocolate so, and peanut butter. Yeah, perfect combination. Chocolate and peanut butter. Sweet and salty. Yes. Yeah. Thank you all. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> well, Becky, that was a fantastic conversation that we just had with uh, Jill, Representative Fenn, and, and Leslie. Thank you for leading that. Thank you for organizing that. Um, and I, I do want to say that this is unique in the fact the guests, but also what drove it, which was the conversation we had with with Dr. Scott Jensen, which the response was, I think, explosive. Uh, everyone's got an opinion on it. It drove um, a pretty significant media narrative that continues to kind of develop since the episode was, was released last week. And again, I think it shows uh, what I'm very proud of is our work in having hosting this podcast and leading the conversation. And so I think this episode is a logical 
conclusion or a logical uh, con uh, next step of that discussion that we had with Scott Jensen and having that kind of safe space for Republicans to vent, talk, and kind of grow the party and, and continue that conversation. So thank you for organizing that and for leading the effort. I I got to throw it to you. Um, you know, this was was a great idea. And I just think it's incredible at a time when, you know, as a Republican woman, uh, we get a lot of I, I've gone on my women rants before, but in particular, the the Democrats and, and others like to point that there are no Republican women, that Republican women don't have a voice in the party. And I think tonight really showed that there are some really strong um, vocal Republican women in our party that do have efforts to to make changes and, and to make things better for for families, for candidates, for our party as a whole. Um, and I think I, I want to applaud you for for supporting that and and also just for this, you know, space that we've created that um, can can lend itself to that. I think, like you mentioned uh, just a little bit ago in the show, that we've had Republicans and Democrats and senators and representatives and, you know, everything in the middle and operatives and, and all across um, the spectrum on here to talk about their vision and their stances and then how we, how that, you know, how, how we stand on that. Um, I think it's going to be instrumental to kind of bridge the gap that we see with the division in this country and that having civil conversations is possible and making changes for what you believe in. Um, in this case, what we want to see more of and better of for the Republican party, um, it doesn't seem like it's within grasp at this point. Um, I think that we can get there. And I think having more conversations, uh, open, honest, raw, vulnerable. I mean, these women are still active in the Republican Party. They really did, you know, uh, were honest with their feelings and didn't mince words. And I, and I respect that uh, of them because I have to imagine there's some folks on Twitter or text messages that they'll, you know, get get some maybe some feedback from other delegates or activists within the party. So I love the conversation. I think having more panel conversations in the future is going to be great. Um, and and I'm hopeful that we can do, you know, get up from the rock bottom here. Yes. And, and I think it's important that I think one of the reasons we wanted to have Scott Jensen on was to have a conversation and a discussion, to find a way to be to disagree, but not be disagreeable with the other, to not be personal. I think we've really tried to carve out a safe space for people to come in and know that they're going to be treated with respect, even if we disagree on stuff. I do think what is unique about what occurred in the planning of this episode is that we did not sit down and say, we're going to invite three women on the show. That wasn't, it wasn't like our intention to do that. We just, we, we kind of strategized and thought about like, who are people we should get? And it just worked out that way. What I find so interesting is we're recording this episode in the aftermath of what happened just a couple of days ago with the announcement of this uh, uh, Suburban Solution Caucus, which I think is just and remains to be a big head scratcher for me. And my hope is that I think every, things happen for a reason. And I think that it's very interesting that we had organized after you and I had worked on this concept, we had done this work to get this panel tonight and we have this just clear example of where Republicans still need to do some work. Because what is important for me is, and I think is for you too, but I, I don't speak for you, is that we have discussions and that we move forward. And we may disagree on how Republican we are right now, but I strongly believe that as if I want to be a Republican and be active in the party 
and not be as homeless as I am. The party needs to change and it needs to adopt. I think we really started a good conversation. And it's frustrating to me after having Scott Jensen on, and I think moving the dial as much as we needed to have that conversation, we have another example just coming up this week of how we may not have hit rock bottom yet. And I don't want to be too harsh on legislators and people and, and not create that type of space for them to make a mistake. But I have just a little more frustration about that rollout this week from an optic standpoint and from a messaging standpoint than I have about the 2020 elections in some ways, because it's so fresh. It just happened this week. And I just had an expectation that we'd hit rock bottom. And I don't know that we have. Um, I think that we should put out this um, offer to anyone who wants to uh, come to BB Breakpot on Twitter or our website. If you need somebody to poke holes and be devil's advocate in, um, in anything, we are happy to play that role. But in all seriousness, that's just something that I hope that um, anybody that is doing some anything in the public realm, in front of press, in front of voters, um, have somebody sit there and say, what are the Democrats going to do to this? What are they going to say about it? And, and how are they going to present it? And ask yourself those questions before before getting in front of video cameras, before getting in front of voters, because if you don't, those Democrats are going to do that. They're going to poke the holes. They're going to make the, the statements. They're going to critique that issue, thought, caucus, conference, event, whatever it might be. Um, and literally just have somebody say, poke holes in this. This is what I want to do. What do you think? What are the Democrats going to think? Have five minutes to do that, um, and and it will make you a better speaker, presenter, better ideas, more well-rounded in all facets of of what we're trying to do here. And I, I plead, but throwing my hand up, I'm happy to play devil's advocate anytime that, that we need to. And I would agree with you. I also think not only, in, in just to finish my remarks, is not only are to poke holes what the Democrats do, but also your fellow Republicans. I think in this particular instance with this rollout this week, a lot of it was the criticism was from Republicans that were critical of this rollout and the concept. I think it's incredibly, the reaction to it has been very surprising to me and frustrating. Representative Andrew Brindley, who we've had on as a guest, was critical of the rollout. She's a state rep. And so she's critical, I think, of some of her fellow Republicans. That type of conversation can happen in private, Unfortunately, right now, I think it's happening more in public, but whatever's going to be productive to get it resolved, I think it just needs to happen. And I think that it's been an interesting week. And this is just an example of how I think we're never going to be short for material. I agree. Particularly with your bad food takes. We're not oh, going to Oh, man. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wow you next week. Just get ready. Right. Right. I'm preparing myself to be disappointed. All right. Well, thank you again. Oh, no, thank your, you. You did. Uh, you led that episode. You choreographed it. Uh, kept the, everything moving, and it was night. It was just. It was interesting for me just to be uh, to quiet, listen, and just be a member of the audience for a while because it was really important for for. I learned a lot, and it was great to to see um, and listen to uh, just some great points being made by some really sharp activists in the party. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Okay, thank you for listening to The Breakdown with Broderick and Becky. Before we go, we'd like to remind you again to show some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast or any platform where you listen. You can also leave a review on our website at bbbreakpod.com. 
We're also on Twitter at BBBreakPod. Again, Twitter at, at BBBreakPod. I want to thank everyone again. Becky, thank you so much. We will return next week. See you then. See ya.